Hello, 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 friends. Welcome back to Sinister Sisters. I'm Kat. I'm solo today. Shrimp is unwell, so <laughs> you probably didn't want to listen to her grumbly voice anyway. So, just me today. Solo episode. Probably less tangents coming up, but hopefully just as much um, slightly sinister information coming your way. <laughs> So some content warnings for this episode. We will be talking pretty extensively about prescription drugs, street drugs, um, drug usage, drug misuse. So if any of those topics are triggering to you, maybe just check back next week or check out one of our other episodes. Um, we will also be talking about overdose and, um, and death related to drug usage. So again, check out other episodes if that's not a comfy topic for you. Um, but if not, let's get into it. So today we're discussing the Sackler family, who are one of the richest families in America. And at their richest, they had a net worth of about $13 billion. They made most of their fortune from Purdue Pharma, which is a company best known for the prescription painkiller Oxycontin. That generated about $35 billion in revenue for the company. Oxycontin is a pretty controversial drug because it contains oxycodone, which is the chemical cousin of heroin, and it's up to twice as powerful as morphine. In the past, doctors have been really hesitant to prescribe strong opiates to people, except for in cases for acute cancer pain or end-of-life treatment because there are really documented addictive properties for these drugs. The former commissioner of the FDA, David Kessler, has been quoted as saying in the past, few drugs are as dangerous as opioids. However, Purdue Pharma launched a marketing campaign to change doctors' prescribing habits. They funded research and they actually paid doctors to promote oxycodone as a safe treatment for various ailments. Sales representatives marketed Oxycontin as a product to start with and to stay with. So, pretty toxic. While most patients found that Oxycontin was an effective pain reliever, many other people found themselves becoming addicted to the drug and using it off-label. Since 1999, 200,000 Americans have died from overdoses related to Oxycontin, and other prescription opiates. Many people finding that their prescription painkillers were too expensive or too difficult to obtain turned to heroin. According to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, four out of five people who try heroin today actually started with prescription painkillers. And the most recent figures from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention suggested that 145 Americans now die every day from opioid overdoses. This has led to widespread concern and controversy surrounding the Sackler family's involvement with Purdue Pharma and their role in promoting the use of Oxycontin. So we're gonna turn back the clock a little bit here to the beginning of the Sackler dynasty as we know it now. So three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer and Raymond grew up in the 1930s in Brooklyn. All three went to medical school and worked together at the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center in Queens. In 1942, Arthur took a 
job in copywriting to help pay for his med school tuition. He was so good at copywriting and advertising that he actually eventually bought the ad agency and he had a huge impact on the way that pharmaceutical companies marketed their drugs. Before Arthur Sackler, drug companies didn't use advertising really to sell their products. But Sackler knew that selling new drugs required seducing not only the patient themselves, but also the doctor prescribing the drugs. And so he used his knowledge of the medical industry and experience being a doctor to market products directly to clinicians by putting ads in medical journals, enlisting prominent doctors to endorse his products, and by citing scientific studies. However, some of his techniques were pretty deceptive like when he produced an ad for a new Pfizer antibiotic that used doctor's names that didn't exist. He also made a huge amount of money by marketing Librium and Valium, medications of the benzodiazepine category that were used typically to treat insomnia and anxiety. Sackler promoted Valium for such a wide range of uses that in 1965, a journal article in Psychosomatics asked, when do we not use the drug? One campaign encouraged doctors to prescribe Valium to people with no psychiatric symptoms whatsoever. Quote, For this kind of patient, with no demonstrable pathology, consider the usefulness of Valium. Roche, the maker of Valium, had conducted no studies into its addictive potential. As we now know, in 2023, benzodiazepines are highly prone to dependence, in fact, films featuring drug usage often talk about benzos and zannies, you know, referring to drugs that people are using recreationally at parties, but these are actually prescription benzodiazepines. Alan Francis, the former chair of psychiatry at Duke University's School of Medicine, states, quote, most of the questionable practices that propelled the pharmaceutical industry into the screwed it is today can be attributed to Arthur Sackler. We love Big Pharma. So in the 1950s, the Sackler brothers purchased a small patent medicine company called Purdue Frederick, which made everyday products like laxatives and earwax removers. By the 1960s, the brothers had grown the company into a pharmaceutical giant that could control the entire process essentially of bringing a drug to market. However, the Sacklers' rise to success was not without controversy. So, in 1959, it was revealed that the company owned by Arthur Sackler, called MD Publications, had paid the chief of the antibiotics division of the FDA, Henry Welch, nearly $300,000 in exchange for Welch's help in promoting certain drugs. This scandal led to Walter's resignation and a little bit of a distrust from the American people in these pharmaceutical companies. And then in 1962, Arthur Sackler was summoned to testify before a Senate subcommittee that was investigating the pharmaceutical industry. A memo prepared for this committee noted, quote, the Sackler empire is a completely integrated operation in that it can devise a new drug in its drug development enterprise have a drug clinically tested and secure favorable reports on the drug from various hospitals with which they have connections. 
conceive the advertising approach and prepare the actual advertising copy with which to promote the drug, have the clinical articles as well as advertising copy published in their own medical journals, and prepare and plant articles in newspapers and magazines, end quote. Arthur proved a formidable witness, unfortunately, in this particular case, and essentially was not, the senators were not able to gain any traction. At one point, when Arthur was being quizzed about his promotion of a cholesterol drug that had many severe side effects, including hair loss, Sackler deadpanned, quote, I would rather have thin hair than thick coronaries. As the Sackler wealth grew, they began to become patrons of the arts, donating millions of dollars to cultural institutions, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. They actually sponsored an entire wing at the Met, which houses the Tomb of Dender. This wing was named the Sackler Wing up until 2021. And as recently as 2017, the Sackler name was on a huge amount of buildings across the world, including hospitals, universities, and art institutes. They really weaseled their way into high society, essentially. Arthur Sackler died in 1987, which led to quite the family feud over Arthur's estate. His children fought bitterly with his wife and sparred with their uncles Mortimer and Raymond. According to the minutes of a family meeting, Arthur's daughter Elizabeth suggested that he had hidden the true worth of some family investments, quote, because he didn't want Morty and Ray to think that they were more valuable. Just as a side note, uh, but if you have to have minutes taken at your family meetings, I feel like that indicates that there's something a little bit off. Anyway, um, Arthur's descendants still owned a third of Purdue Frederick, and Mortimer and Raymond were interested in buying the stake, which they did eventually do. The company, which at some point had moved to Connecticut, and would eventually change its name to Purdue Farmer, had made a great deal of money under Mortimer and Ray. Despite the family drama going on with the death of Arthur, the, Shack the Sacklers were still making a huge sum of money. And in the early 1990s, they began to develop a new drug called Oxycontin, as we've talked about already. Humans have been cultivating the opium poppy for over 5,000 years, and even Hippocrates, the father of medicine as we know it now, recognized the therapeutic properties of the plant. But the ancient world did still understand that there was a lot of dangers with this um, plant or drug as well. So fast forward again to the 1980s. Purdue Pharma had had a great success with a medication called MS Contin, which was a morphine pill that dissolved gradually into the bloodstream over several hours. By the late 1980s, its patent was about to expire, and Purdue executives started to look for a replacement drug to sell. Drug patents typically prevent generic medications from being made for about 20 years. This keeps profits within the company that created the drug, but to get around this, Pharmaceutical companies will often make slight changes to drug formulations to be able to apply for a new patent and to prevent those generic drugs from being able to be made. So at this point, we enter Richard Sackler, who was Raymond Sackler's son. 
Like his father and uncles, Richard had trained as a doctor before joining the family company in 1971. In the summer of 1990, a Purdue scientist sent a memo to Richard and several other colleagues pointing out that MS Contin could face pretty serious generic competition when the patent expired and suggested that other controlled release opioids be considered to kind of keep lion's share of the market. The memo described ongoing efforts to create a product containing oxycodone, an opioid that had first been developed by German scientists in 1916. So this is where Purdue actually really began to develop OxyContin as a pill. Um, so it contained pure oxycodone with a time-release formula similar to that at uh, similar to that of the MS Contin. Purdue decided that it would produce doses as low as 10 milligrams, but would also develop jumbo pills of 80 and 160 milligrams, whose potency far exceeded the other prescription opiates on the market and other prescription pain medication. Before releasing Oxycontin, Purdue conducted focus groups with doctors and learned that their biggest concern was the potential for abuse of opioids. However, some doctors, sort of like luckily for the Sacklers at this time, were arguing that American medicine should re-examine its bias against opioids. A highly regarded physician called Russell Portnoy claimed that concerns about addiction and abuse amounted to medical myth and that opioids were, quote, a gift from nature that needed to be destigmatized. Purdue, Purdue funded Portnoy's research on the use of opioids to treat chronic pain and stated that opioids could be used, which stated that opioids could be used for a long time without fear of dependence. In 1997, the American Academy of Pain Medicine and the American Pain Society published a statement regarding the use of opioids to treat chronic pain. The statement was written by a committee chaired by Dr. D J. David Haddox, a paid speaker for Purdue. And he's going to come back in here a few times. Richard Sackler and Purdue Pharma set out on a massive marketing campaign. I got my life back now. Now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. And before, even a good day was hell. I mean, I couldn't enjoy nothing. But now I can enjoy myself. That's when I said wonderful. Which played a really significant role on the availability of Oxycontin. The FDA approved the drug in 1995 to treat moderate to severe pain. Despite Purdue conducting no clinical studies on the drug's potential for addiction or dependence. However, the FDA did also approve at that time a package insert for Oxycontin, claiming that it was safer than rival painkillers due to its patented delayed absorption mechanism. So, FDA in their pocket as well. Purdue Pharma launched Oxycontin with one of the largest pharmaceutical marketing campaigns in history, using persuasive techniques that were pioneered by Arthur Sackler. The company created a sales force of up to a thousand representatives who went out into the field on the charts, demonstrating Oxycontin's benefits. Purdue convinced doctors to prescribe Oxycontin not only for acute severe pain, but also for long-lasting pain like arthritis, sports injuries, um, fibromyalgia, things like that. 
Purdue Pharma wanted to target general practitioners who were not pain specialists, reaching patients who were, quote, opiate naive. However, from a public health standpoint, the goal should have been to sell the least dosage of the drugs to the smallest number of patients. Purdue set out to do the opposite of this, broadening the use of Oxycontin for pain management, sort of like across the board, could be prescribed for anything and everything, essentially. Purdue Pharma sponsored medical conferences, paid clinicians to attend them and give presentations about the merits of the drug, and offered all expenses paid trips to pain management seminars. Purdue even distributed Oxycontin swag, such as fishing hats, plush toys and luggage tags, really gross. Like it's medicine, not um, like a fun new video game. The company produced promotional videos that featured satisfied patients and pain specialists who endorsed the drug for everyday usage. The marketing of Oxycontin relied on an empirical circularity. So Purdue convinced doctors of the drug's safety with literatures produced by doctors who were paid or funded by the company. According to David Jerlink, who heads the Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology, Toxicology Division at the University of Toronto, Oxycontin's success can be partly attributed to doctors' desire to help their patients who were suffering. As a primary goal in medical practice, it is the doctor's aim to alleviate their patients' pain and to you know, help them out as best they can. And so when they learn about the therapeutic benefits of opioids, they became more than willing to prescribe them in that drive to help their patients. The fact that Oxycontin had been deemed as safe and effective also really contributed to its popularity. Keith Humphreys, a Stanford professor of psychiatry who worked as a drug policy advisor during the Obama administration, expressed concern about how many well-meaning doctors fell prey to the influence of Purdue Pharma. Humphreys called it a Greek tragedy and noted the extent of Purdue's influence, such as providing funds to continuing medical education, state medical boards, and faux grassroots organizations. Purdue sales representatives even repeated claims that fewer than 1% of patients who took Oxycontin became addicted or became reliant. Despite evidence on the contrary, I believe the actual figures at that time were closer to 13% of patients. Within just five years of Oxycontin's release, it was generating $1 billion annually, which promoted Purdue executives and members of the Sackler family on the company's board to continue to fund these activities, medical um, education and that sort of thing. Purdue Pharma's sales force was seen as its most, most valuable resource. And in 2001, the company paid $40 million worth of bonuses, which is crazy. Just shows how much money is in pharmaceuticals. Purdue Pharma is a privately held company, which actually makes it really difficult to connect the Sacklers to the profits from Oxycontin. Although the Sackler name can be found on many buildings and is often mentioned in relation to philanthropic causes, the Purdue website rarely mentions the family or the fact that the company's board of directors includes eight family members from three different generations. Almost immediately after Oxycontin's release, signs of drug misuse 
began to appear in rural areas where users discovered they could override the time release mechanism by grinding up pills and snorting them or dissolving them in liquid and injecting them. Instead of acknowledging that this drug had the potential to be to form dependence, Purdue Pharma insisted that the only problem was that recreational drug users were not taking Oxycontin as directed and as labeled. Purdue Pharma's senior medical advisor at the time, Dr. J. David Haddox, insisted that Oxycontin was not addictive. He compared the drug to celery, stating, quote, if I gave you a stalk of celery and you ate that, it would be healthy. But if you put it in a blender and tried to shoot it in your veins, it would not be good. It was Purdue's position that Oxycontin overdoses were a matter of individual responsibility rather than the drug's specific properties that led it to be easily misused. He, did not, he stated that he did not see it as his problem when patients took more and more Oxycontin claiming that they were taking it as their doctors instructed. However, the truth was that the drug itself had intrinsic dangers. The time release formula meant that patients could safely ingest one giant dose every 12 hours, which was, which was an improvement over conventional painkillers such as morphine, who required frequent dosing. However, even before the drug received FDA approval, Purdue was aware that not all patients who took Oxycontin were achieving the 12-hour relief. Internal documents that emerged through litigation in recent years show that roughly half of the women recovering from surgery in a study conducted by Purdue required more medication before the 12-hour mark, but the study was never published. So they hid those that data because the claim of it being a 12-hour relief was a huge marketing tool that they used. Um, you only had to take it twice a day, nice and easy, whatever. So they, they hid those results to continue being able to market the 12 hours. Purdue's executive vice president in 2001 testified before Congress that the marketing of Oxycontin had been, quote, conservative by any standard, and that virtually all reports of opiate Opiate abuse involved people abusing the medication and not patients with legitimate medical needs. That came out to be false, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, in 2002, a 29-year-old woman called Jill Skolek died of respiratory arrest in her sleep after being prescribed Oxycontin for a back injury, leaving behind her six-year-old son. Marianne Skolek Perez, a nurse, became who was a nurse, became convinced that Oxycontin was dangerous. She wrote to FDA officials, urging them to include a warning about the risk of addiction and misuse on Oxycontin packaging. The following year, Perez attended a conference on addiction at Columbia University, where she, where she encountered Robin Hogan, Purdue's communications specialist, who had launched a vigorous campaign to defend the drug, warning newspapers to be careful about their coverage. Hogan claimed that the real problem was Jill Skolek's misuse of the drug. He was asked about Perez's daughter and warned against reading into her death any liability on, per on Purdue's part. Hogan has since apologized for this remark, but Purdue Pharma's reputation had already started to decline at this point. 
In 2003, the DEA claimed that Purdue had used, quote, aggressive methods that had exasperated Oxycontin widespread misuse. Rogelio Guevara, a senior official at the DEA, concluded that Purdue had deliberately minimized the risks associated with the medication. Despite this, the company continued to shift blame to drug users and created a public service announcement that portrayed a teenager raiding his parents' medicine cabinet. Like, just stigmatizing people, essentially, for a problem that they create. Many people who took Oxycontin as their doctors instructed still began to experience withdrawal symptoms between doses. And despite Purdue's claims, the 12-hour relief, as we mentioned earlier, didn't work for everyone. And doctors began to notice this and began reporting that patients were coming to them with symptoms of withdrawal and were asking for more medication. Dr. Haddix in 1989 had coined the term pseudo-addiction, which he used to explain why patients may exhibit symptoms of addiction due to unrelieved pain. Purdue distributed a pain management pamphlet that explained pseudo-addiction and claimed that misunderstanding the phenomenon could lead to inappropriate stigmatization of patients as, quote, addicts. Pseudo-addiction generally stopped once pain was relieved, coincidentally through an increase in their opiate dosage. So definitely not trying to sell more drugs at all with that. As more doctors prescribed Oxycontin for an increasing range of symptoms, some patients began to sell their pills on the black market. And sort of in response to this, pain clinics known as pill mills sprouted up and thrived on wholesale business of issuing Oxycontin prescriptions. Despite mounting evidence of Oxycontin's risks, Purdue refused to concede that the drug posed any dangers. Company leaders were primarily concerned that attempts to stem overdoses might deprive pain patients of access to the medication, and they instructed their sales force to, quote, sell through it, sell through the controversy, and ignore the reports of drug misuse. In 2001, Richard Blumenthal, who was the Attorney General of Connecticut, wrote to Richard Sackler, who was the president at this time, urging Purdue to overhaul and reform its marketing of Oxycontin. The Sacklers disregarded his recommendation, and in 2004, Blumenthal filed a complaint against Purdue on behalf of the state of Connecticut. Purdue had been sued thousands of times over Oxycontin since its release, with plaintiffs accusing the company of misleading, false advertising, and contributing to the opioid epidemic. In 2006, Purdue settled a lawsuit with 5,000 patients who said they had become addicted to Oxycontin after receiving a prescription from their doctor. Purdue also pled guilty in a case brought forward by federal prosecutors in Virginia, acknowledging that the company had marketed Oxycontin with the intent to defraud or to mislead consumers. The settlement was for $600 million, and Purdue executives received probation and were ordered to pay nearly $35 million in fines. Some observers felt that the company had gone off really easy with this, given the billions of dollars that they had made from Oxycontin sales. 
Richard Sackler did not receive any charges, despite being pretty integral and central in the um, both development and marketing of OxyContin initially. A similar set of lawsuits were brought forward in 1998 against the tobacco industry. This was one of the largest or the largest civil litigation settlement in history. The tobacco industry agreed to pay $246 billion after being sued by dozens of states. While tobacco and opioids are different in pretty significant ways, Mike Moore, who played a key role in the tobacco litigation as Mississippi's Attorney General, noted that the tobacco company has actually had more money to spare than Purdue Pharma does. He says, quote, to resolve the opioid problem, you're going to need billions. Adding that treatment alone could cost $50 billion or more. Many public officials are angry with the makers of these powerful painkillers, as taxpayers often then become responsible for the prescriptions through programs like Medicaid, or if you live not in the States, through your social Medicaid medical benefits. And then again, they, um, taxpayers for the bill for emergency services, treatment, um, and additional costs as crisis kind of take hold. Mike Moore believes that the Sackler family as the initial sort of creator and prime beneficiary of the epidemic should be publicly shamed. He thinks that they should really be held accountable. He says they're both profiting by killing people, including the tobacco companies and the opioid producers. Um, we also find that pretty regularly um, preventative programs are much more effective both monetarily and sort of like socially for the for the good of the people participating them in them so preventative health care measures like not smoking you know all those ads and um you know kind of explanations about the detriments that smoking can have on your lungs and in the case of opiate prescriptions keeping the amount of prescriptions to the minimum the minimal amount that you can. So prescribing them only as needed and, you know, ideally for short periods of time. Almost 40% of deaths in the United States could be prevented through better primary prevention. So like the reducing tobacco usage and minimizing opiate prescriptions as needed. Richard Sackler resigned as Purdue's president in 2003, but he remained co-chairman of the company's board for many years after. Surprisingly, the Sackler family, despite being very well educated and aware, and as well as their tendency to disagree within their family, have remained basically silent about the origins of their money and about Oxycontin itself. Despite their close ties and their, their many philanthropic endeavors, they have made no significant donations towards treatment for drug misuse, substance misuse, or any measures that could help combat the opioid crisis. In 2010, Purdue replaced the Oxycontin drug with a reformulated version that was harder to misuse. This move may have seemed like a step in the right direction, but it was likely motivated by a need to block competition from generic drugs, rather than an actual genuine concern for public health. Purdue filed papers with the FDA to refuse to accept generic versions of the original Oxycontin, claiming that they were unsafe. Despite having a long denied that the original 
formulation of the Oxycontin drug was especially prone to misuse. This FDA filing effectively blocked any low-cost generic competition for the company. The company's decision to reformulate the drug, like I said, was likely a tactic to obtain a new patent and to reset the clock on their exclusivity rights to produce the medication. Purdue continued to sell the original formulation of Oxycontin in Canada, where sales suddenly mysteriously quadrupled, indicating that pills were being purchased for the US black market. They were especially common in cities just, just over the border, like Hamilton. Purdue was likely aware of this spike in sales, but the company did nothing to disclose whether or not they alerted authorities to the issue. By the time that Purdue reformulated Oxycontin, the United States was really deep into its opiate e epidemic. Though older people who were misusing the reformulated Oxycontin could continue to obtain the drug through legal prescriptions, the high cost of Oxycontin has driven a lot of younger people towards black market substitutes, especially heroin. This has created a dreadful paradox. The original formulation created a generation who were reliant on pills, and the reformulation, by forcing younger users off the medication, has helped create a generation reliant on heroin. In, an, in its initial marketing, Purdue targeted populations that would be set, susceptible to its product, pinpointing, quote, communities where there is a lot of poverty and a lack of education and opportunity. They also created a program that encouraged doctors to issue coupons for a free initial prescription. Purdue Pharma now acknowledges that the opioid crisis exists, but maintains that it has taken every available step to address it, from sponsoring prescription monitoring programs in some states to underwriting substance misuse education. The company has been trying to develop non-opiate pain products emphasizing that there are many other powerful painkillers and that Oxycontin never had more than 2% of the market for opioids. So while this is technically true in terms of the actual number of prescriptions, most painkillers are typically prescribed on a short-term basis for acute pain, things like after surgery or from a specific injury, where Oxycontin sales have always been driven by long-term high dosage prescriptions. Some doctors estimate that it could be as high as 30% of the opiate market is held by Oxycontin. The United States accounts for roughly a third of the global market for opioid painkillers, but as politicians and journalists have raised alarm over the drug use crisis, many American doctors have grown leery of prescribing these medications. Opiates can be problematic even for people who use them exactly as directed and as exactly as prescribed. As we mentioned, um, sometimes the window shortens and also your body gets used to the medication so they don't work as effectively over time. In 2015, Richard Sackler went to Louisville with his lawyers as Purdue was being sued by Kentucky. This case uh, started about eight years earlier for misleadingly promoting Oxycontin. Purdue tried to move the trial to another location, but the judge denied their request. Sackler went to Louisville for the deposition, 
where he was questioned where he was questioned about his role in developing and marketing Oxycontin. Attorneys who attended the deposition said that Sackler showed no remorse and compared Purdue's actions to those of mining companies who cause environmental damage and then just pack up and leave the area. In preparation for the trial, a former litigator found a photograph of a high school football team from the area where almost half of the players had either died of overdoses or were currently misusing opiates. Purdue eventually settled the case for $24 million, but they did not admit any fault, and the settlement sealed Sackler's deposition and internal documents from the discovery. Purdue has settled rather than face trial in most cases to keep documents from being made public. Despite a lawsuit to unseal Sackler's deposition, it remains hidden. According to Mike Moore, who we mentioned earlier, the fact that Purdue is fighting to keep a deposition hidden really says something about what it contains. In 2016, the CDC introduced guidelines to help reduce the prescribing of strong painkillers like Oxycontin. The guidelines recommended that doctors first consider non-pharmacological approaches, such as physical therapy, non-opioid pharmacological treatments. However, many nonprofit groups that advocate for pain patients and are funded by pharmaceutical companies like Purdue fought to prevent the CDC from releasing these guidelines. Purdue and other painkiller producers, along with their associated nonprofits, spent nearly $900 million on lobbying and political contributions between 2006 and 2015. This kind of obstruction is typical at both the state and federal level. After Purdue made its guilty plea in 2007, it assembled an army of lobbyists to fight any legislative actions that might, in that might encroach on its business. Since Purdue made it more difficult to grind Oxycontin pills with this new formulation, prescriptions have reportedly plummeted by over 40%. However, Purdue received FDA approval in 2015 to market Oxycontin to children as young as 11. The Sackler family continues to receive around $700 million a year from the family companies. I believe this figure was from about 2017. Purdue is now pushing Oxycontin through a Purdue-related company called Mundi Pharma into international markets. Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, where opioids still have, you know, some stigma that the company was able to break down in the United States. As Purdue moves into new markets, its marketing approach hasn't changed at all. The company continues to make bold claims about the existence of large numbers of people who are living and experiencing chronic pain, and pays doctors to give presentations spouting the virtues of Oxycontin and its effectiveness. In fact, certain doctors who are currently promoting Oxycontin abroad used to be on Purdue's payroll as advocates for the drug in the US. So they've kind of cornered their market of doctors who are willing to take payment. Mike Moore compared the actions of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family to those of the tobacco industry, exporting their harmful products to companies who had less 
rigorous regulations. Congress members wrote to the World Health Organization, urging them to help stop the spread of Oxycontin and mentioning the Sackler family by name specifically. The failure of the US Department of Justice to properly take action against Richard Sackler sends a message to other private companies that they can knowingly deceive the public about dangerous drugs and not face any consequences, kind of hide behind the business. Despite Purdue Pharma pleading guilty to multiple federal charges in the past, the Sackler family has negotiated immunity from further civil lawsuits. Psychiatrist Alan Francis said of the Sacklers, quote, a truly philanthropic family, looking at the last 20 years, would say, you know, the several million Americans who are addicted directly or indirectly because of us. Real philanthropy, which we contribute money to taking care of them. At this point, adding their name to a building, it rings hollow. It's not phil phil philanthropy, it's just glorification of the Sackler name. End quote. This has happened in the past with other families and other individuals. Um, so, example, Alfred Nobel, the, who invented dynamite, then created the Nobel Peace Prize. And also several philanthropic organizations run by descendants of John D. Rockefeller have devoted resources to addressing climate change and critiquing the environmental record of the oil company that he founded, uh, which is now ExxonMobil, I believe. Valerie Rockefeller Wayne told CBS, quote, because the source of the family wealth is fossil fuels, we feel an enormous moral responsibility. Now onto some more recent events. Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family have paid $6 billion to settle a recent lawsuit brought by several US states over the opioid crisis. The Sacklers, who at the time, cumulative net worth is around $13 billion, will pay at least $5.5 billion in cash to fund treatment centers for those with substance misuse disorders. They did not admit any wrongdoing, but they did apologize for Oxycontin's involvement in the opioid crisis. The settlement grants the family protection from future civil liability, but not from potential criminal legal exposure. Purdue Pharma has been accused of pushing Oxycontin pain drugs while downplaying its potential for misuse. It filed for bankruptcy in 2019. As part of the settlement I was just mentioning, the family is now banned from the US opioid industry and together with Purdue must make public over 30 million documents, some which were previously withheld as privileged legal advice. Purdue must be dissolved or sold by 2024 and they now have agreements in place with all 50 US states and the District of Columbia, but we're still waiting on those agreements to be approved by bankruptcy court. The Sackler family also owns Mundy Pharma, as I was saying earlier, which produces Nyxoid, which is a naloxone nasal spray that treats opioid overdoses. Recent lawsuits allege that Purdue aimed to profit off substance misuse with one internal document suggesting that Purdue could profit by providing both opioids and the treatment for misusing opioids. 
the rise in overdoses has resulted in the need for overdose reversal drugs like Nyxoid and Narcan. Purdue Pharma announced this week actually that they will provide $9 million in financial support for an over-the-counter intranasal naloxone spray called Rivi. Rivive, sorry. The move was approved by the US Bankruptcy Court and will allow Harm Reduction Therapeutics, a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, to make nasal spray available to the public. Purdue Pharma has been supporting Harm Reduction Therapeutics since 2018 by providing funds, technical expertise, and access to data. This seems suspicious to me. Um, I wasn't actually able to find any info specifically on this, probably because this is pretty recent. Um, so it might just be tinfoil hat cat at play here. Um, but it seems to me like they're still finding a way to profit off the opioid crisis, but just in a different way. Um, because they're not offering the nasal spray for, for free. They're offering it at a low cost. So seems sus. But we'll see. We have also seen lawsuits in Canada related to wrongful conduct of opioid manufacturers, distributors, and their consultants, including a large class action lawsuit that was initiated by the British Columbia provincial government on behalf of all federal, provincial, and territorial governments in 2018. BC alleges that the companies engaged in deceptive marketing practices which resulted in increased rates of substance use and overdose. Purdue Canada is one of over 40 defendants named in the lawsuit, and a proposed settlement with them has been agreed to by all federal, provincial, and territorial governments. The settlement totals $150 million in monetary benefits, with additional benefits such as access to information and documents relevant to the lawsuit. The proposed settlement is subject to final court approval, which is expected to happen this year. BC's application to certify its class action lawsuit is scheduled for the fall of 2023, which could lead to further settlements coming through. The provinces, territories, and the Canadian federal government have stated that they will continue to pursue litigation against the remaining defendants named in the suit. The CEO of a behavioral sciences network in Western Connecticut, Maria Skinner, said that solving the problem of substance use will require a holistic approach, and so not one agency can have all of the answers. She emphasized that any programs or solutions that will be put into place must be comprehensive and sustainable. The settlements against Purdue and other parties related to the opioid crisis have begun to be distributed to state governments in recent years, months. Um, each state has its own plan for tackling the issue, but the vast majority of the funds must go towards drug use treatment. So Colorado created the Opioid Abatement Council, which will distribute the settlement funds for treatment, recovery, harm reduction, law enforcement, and prevention slash education programs. Delaware has set up the Prescription Opioid Settlement Distribution Fund, which provides grant awards for efforts to treat, prevent, and reduce opioid use disorder. The money, as I said, has been subject to certain rules to prevent 
misuse of funds, which is actually what happened with the 1998 tobacco settlements, where a lot of the money was not actually spent on public health, it was went into other things. Um, so public health officials are calling for states to prioritize medication-assisted treatment and to combine it with psychological counseling and other social safety net programming. The settlement money is, of course, just the beginning, and so it's expected to increase as more settlements are reached and decided on. And so I guess we'll see what comes of that. States are required to spend 85% of their settlement funds on opioid remediation, with 70% allocated to future remediation. To prevent a repeat of the tobacco settlement controversy, where only 3% of billions of dollars were used for treatment and cessation of smoking, states have wide discretion over how they choose to spend the money. In many states, advisory boards have been created to make recommendations on what the best way to allocate the funds would be. Rhode Island, for example, is using some of their settlement money to establish overdose prevention centers, which are safe, clean environments where people who use drugs can consume substances with trained medical staff who can handle overdoses and other side effects that might come along with the usage. Brandon Marshall, who's the scientific director of Prevent Overdose Rhode Island, said that the committee looked at the vast scientific literature supporting these treatment centers to make the decision. Since this case is really still ongoing, I suppose time will tell how effective these programs will be. I personally hope that we'll see some more effective punishments for the Sackler family and for the Purdue company in order to set a precedence for further court cases against other pharm pharmaceutical companies. Um, going bankrupt doesn't seem to me like good enough for Purdue. Um, we don't want to encourage other companies to take advantage of other people in these really tough situations. Let me know what you think. Um, so I know Big Pharma is a really big topic. I don't think we've really even scratched the surface in this episode and maybe we will never be able to get to the full deep dive depths of it. Um, but I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much for catching up with us this week. We appreciate your support so much. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching. If you are struggling right now with substance use, please know that there is help out there and it's available. I've listed some resources down below that you can check out to find some services or supports available in your home community. So take care, my friends. We'll see you next week. Shrimp should be back and so we can have a full Sinister Sisters and Sinister Friends reunion. Um, yeah, let me know what you think in the description, or sorry, let me know what you think in the comments or in um, an email, Instagram message. So you can find us on Instagram at sinistersisters.podcast, on TikTok and YouTube at sinistersisterspodcast. You can send us emails at sinistersisterspod at gmail.com. We also have a form in the various description boxes um, that you can use to make case request forms if there's something specific that you might like us to speak about. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye!